Timothy Phillips' book, Beslan, The Tragedy of School Number One, looks both at the events of the siege of the school in Beslan um, over two years ago and also at the wider context in which those events took place. Timothy, I wanted to ask you first if you could perhaps remind us of what actually took place in, in Beslan. On the 1st of September 2004, children in the town of Beslan in the south of Russia were getting ready to go back to school after the summer holidays. And in Russia, this day is always a cause for celebration. It's called the Day of Knowledge. And at school number one, as elsewhere in the small town, parents and grandparents were getting ready to accompany their children for the celebrations. The day is particularly important for children aged seven who are going to school for the first time and their wider family often accompanies them as well. And when they got to the school and were ready to start the celebration at nine o'clock, and because the weather's rather better in the Caucasus than it is here, people were preparing for the celebration outside, um, and the rows of school children were coming out of the doors, some terrorists in a truck drove up to the entrance of the school and jumped out and surrounded the pupils and teachers and parents and started to drive them into the school building again. This was at five past nine and obviously it was completely unexpected and as a result people obeyed, they didn't feel they had any other choice and they ended up being herded into the school gym. And how many people did they take hostage? The figure is still not exactly known but it seems around 1,200 people were taken hostage. And thereafter they were held in the most unimaginably terrible conditions in the school for over two days? That's right. Um, at first it wasn't clear what, what the terrorists' intentions were and they didn't make known any demands, but what became clear was that very little water and almost no food was being made available to anyone, even, even children and even the very young children who were there. And over time, as the terrorists became more angry and more frustrated, they made a blanket ban on people um, eating and drinking. When the authorities got into contact with them from outside and offered food and water and medicine, these offers were refused, and, and at times the terrorists said that actually the, um, the hostages inside had declared an unofficial hunger strike in sympathy with the terrorist demands, which was obviously untrue. Now, this was happening in the area of Russia that you knew. Do you remember how you, how you reacted when the, when the news was unfolding at the time? Yes, I mean, while it was going on, I, I was actually out of the country, but I remember seeing it on CNN and BBC World and seeing it unfolding and thinking how absolutely terrible it was and I remember the people I was with at the time asking me what I thought would happen and why it had happened because they assumed I would know something about it and I remember feeling a terrible inevitability about the fact that there was going to be a bad ending. Uh, A few days earlier two Russian planes, Russian passenger planes flying away from Moscow had been blown up by female suicide bombers with significant loss of life and there had been another bombing in Moscow um, just the day before and it seemed that everything was had suddenly taken a turn for the worse. I think for a variety of reasons, anyone who knows about how Russia deals with terrorist attacks and also the nature of Russian terrorists or terrorists based in Russia knows that there's particular cruelty and and a willingness to contemplate all kinds of measures which are unacceptable either to terrorists in the in Western Europe or to authorities in Western Europe. And how, how did the siege eventually end? Well, on the third day, coming up to lunchtime, coming up to one o'clock, for reasons that have never been adequately explained, there was an explosion in the school and the terrorists had booby-trapped the school gym thoroughly. 
with improvised explosives of one kind and another and detonator switches. And there were large concentrations of Russian troops and equipment outside the school by this stage. The actual reason for the explosion is not known, but it exploded and set off what seems to have been chain reaction of different explosions, though they may have come from outside or internally. And this caused the roof of the school to go on fire and then to collapse. And though some people managed to escape, they were fired at both by the terrorists and, it seems, by the Russian authorities as they ran away. And many other people were burned or crushed to death. A small number were taken hostage a second time, as it were, by the terrorists who moved and regrouped in a different part of the school, in the dining room. And there was a gunfight for several hours, during which many others died. I mentioned before that you you know this area of Russia and you're a, a Russian speaker. And you also worked as a translator with the BBC uh, on, on interview material taken with, with people who'd survived or experienced the, the siege. But what made you want to write this particular book about Beslan? One of the particular things about the Beslan school siege is that it touched people all across the world and it was immediately understandable to people all across the world, especially to parents or indeed to school children. Anyone who's ever been a parent would understand the absolutely terrible nature of um, having your child taken hostage and then possibly killed and kept in isolation. And I think I think the depth of feeling um, all across the world wasn't matched by an understanding of why this event had taken place in this place at this time. Beslan was a small town somewhere in Russia, but possibly linked to Chechnya, and that was why it had happened. But otherwise, it, there was very little understanding of how this terrible thing could happen in a country that otherwise is thought of as at least semi-civilised and and certainly part of Europe. So I wanted to write a book which, as well as getting underneath how people felt and experienced the siege uh, in a very personal way, which also tried to paint in the background and explain why this part of the world has these kinds of events taking place in it and what had gone on before, because there have, of course, been many other horrible incidents in the Caucasus and because of the Caucasus... um, in the years and decades running up to Beslan. And you, um, you, you made the decision to, to travel down to Beslan th- from Moscow, and the narrative of that journey um, occurs in the book. Why did you decide to, to approach the town, literally, in that, in that way? Logistically, I felt that I wanted to base myself in Moscow and f- for a few days and talk to... Russians who weren't directly connected to Beslan, weren't living there, and see what they felt about the siege. I also felt that the train journey would be a good opportunity to meet some people and and, and talk to them um, on my way into the Caucasus. What was interesting about that was that their depth of feeling was was not that great. They had forgotten largely about the siege. This was about six to eight months after it had happened and they weren't particularly interested in it. They viewed it as part of the problem Caucasus, and mainly they directed their attention towards trying to discourage me from going there because they said it was dangerous. Uh, so it, it was very interesting to to see that because I think I had expected that since it was Russia's worst ever terrorist atrocity that people would be talking about it much more. And then having read about it and spoken to people and translated material associated with it, one day last spring you eventually stood in the in the gymnasium itself. What what feelings did that provoke? When I first went to the school, 
I had been expecting all kinds of things and playing through in my mind what was likely to happen. And I had a, I had a weirdly good mental picture of how it was all laid out and what had happened where. And so there was something slightly unreal about seeing it. Um, and I think for that reason I was left feeling rather cold at first and, and then upbraiding myself for being rather heartless because I wanted to have a very strong reaction to something which emotionally and mentally I did have a very strong reaction to. But then when I stepped inside the gym, at first I stayed outside and looked in and felt it was maybe inappropriate or, I don't know, to go in. But then other people who were there were going in and using it very much as a public place to gather and talk about their memories of people and place flowers, but not in a very reverential way, in a very homely and, and domestic way. And I went in and, and that was really very moving because what struck me was the different layers of um, grief and memorialisation because the floor of the school has had to be cleared of flowers on several occasions because so many flowers were positioned there and so many banners and, and wreaths. And you can see the remnants of those layers of grief and even then and, and still, I believe now, um, that continues. Um, and I met someone who had lost a relative during the siege while I was in the hall and he came over to speak to me and it was very touching because his first reaction, as is typical in the Caucasus, was to welcome a guest from overseas and temporarily to forget about his reason and my reason for being there. But it turned out that he had been told to go there um, because it was Easter Sunday by his priest as a way of helping him to deal with his grief. So it was a moving experience, but it was a difficult experience. And... I think it was only after I had left that first time and started to think about what I had seen there and, and what it meant that the emotion of it began to hit me. One thing which comes across from your book um, is that while in the West we're, we're no strangers to conspiracy theories surrounding tragedies and national events, but in Russia they, they seem to be absolutely rife. There seems to be a conspiracy theory attached to almost every aspect of of, of this story, and that must have made it both interesting to explore but also difficult to, to try and tease apart the, the truth. Yes, I think conspiracy theories happen all over the world, as you say. I think for two particular reasons in Russia and in Beslan this is, this is particularly the case. They're more likely to happen. First of all, Russia's history, as many people no, in the last hundred years certainly and probably long before has given rise to so many immensely improbable and cruel events that actually things that would seem impossible in our mundane two-party democracy actually have happened in Russia. Mass purges, um, famine used as a weapon by the state, political persecution, all kinds of things. I think the other reason is that the Russian state is very reluctant to give information out and indeed often seems to give misinformation out and consequently people who have suffered um, or who want answers to questions about a certain event um, find themselves presented with a vacuum of information and they fill it themselves and naturally enough they fill it with all kinds of lurid and very personalised explanations of why things happen. One of the most interesting things about the accounts of the survivors of the siege is that 
they often fall back in the vacuum of information. They often fall back on what seems very improbable explanations of why a certain thing happened, why the siege happened, why the final storming of the school happened, or how the terrorists were able to get in with so many weapons. And it's a real tragedy because usually it's quite obvious that a particular narrative is, is unlikely to be true. And yet it's all that these people have to go on. It's all that they have to explain to themselves why they lost their mother or father or son or daughter. And yet even they, as they say it, know that they're using the old tricks of the trade to cobble together some kind of narrative, um, which is, in a sense, stereotypical for them and their people and their place. And they know it's not the real truth, and so their grief isn't diminished and, and is no closer to being assuaged. It makes it difficult to write a book because, obviously, you want, as an author, to present a narrative. And even if you're happy to have occasional passages where something is not entirely clear, you can't have a whole book, which is options um, for the reader to choose between, or bullet points. I think I've tried to steer a path between showing the different approaches and different explanations that survivors have put on the siege and, and indeed outsiders, whilst trying to present the most likely narrative and also not to belittle or criticise unduly people who in very severe circumstances have come to believe a certain, however unlikely, explanation for events. And we're now two years or more on from, from the Bestland siege, and I wonder, do you think, do you think things in Russia have changed? Is has it changed the nature of interracial strife or the authorities' attitudes to terrorism, or is it a, a another way station on a, in a sort of litany of of terrorist atrocities, albeit a particularly atrocious one? I think it it's much more the latter. It's a way station. It's another stepping stone on the way to well, on the way to who knows where, but in ethnic strife um, and inter-Nissan strife that's gone on for centuries. I think Russia has changed in the two years since the attack and, and at times it seems that it's changed because of the attack. At times the government have said that that's why they're introducing a particular piece of legislation that seems more draconian. Putin seems to be having more success in Chechnya recently than he had before. I think that without Beslan, Putin would have found ways to crack down even more on freedom of speech and freedom of expression and to introduce more draconian legislation. I think for people in Russia, as I said earlier, it's largely forgotten as something that is an open wound. It's something to be remembered, something particularly terrible, but, but really just a memory. For people in Beslan, very little has changed since the end of the siege and they have so many unanswered questions and so much grief to deal with. And it's a very difficult time to live in, both for the people who were in the siege and for the people who weren't. And the interrelationship between those people continues to be very strained. Sadly, I don't think it is the kind of D-Day that people talked about at the time. Even we know all that, the, that President Bush and Western governments look on and reflect on September the 11th, 2001, as, as a great turning point in history. I don't think the Russian government is able to do the same thing because it refuses to release information or present the true facts about 
the event. So in a sense, it has to continue whispering about it and only mentioning it every so often. And what impression, finally, would you like the, the reader in the West, having read your book, to be left with? It's a hard question. What do you hope the book will achieve, in other words? I don't know that there's anything the book can achieve. I think one of the things that comes out of what I learned or learned more about through the course of writing the book is that these kinds of struggles have a momentum of their own and if they abate for a time, sometimes it's difficult to find out why that was. It's not some kind of medicine you can bottle and synthesise and, and use forevermore. And sometimes it's for very unpleasant reasons, such as the fact that a, a tyrannical leader like Stalin has come to power in Moscow and therefore puts a, puts a lid on all of this nonsense between different ethnic groups. I don't think there's any prospect of it abating. I don't think there's any message to be taken from the book except for the very specific narratives of the siege that come out of the siege, real stories by real people who lived lives not dissimilar to our own, certainly ordinary lives like millions of other people live in Russia and Eastern Europe and around the world, and suddenly transformed by this event. And whatever Bestland's wider ripples are in the future, their lives will never be the same again because of the school siege. Timothy Phillips, thank you very much.